Well, the last few weeks we have been looking at what the Bible has to say about the spirit of truth, the spirit of error, and we've transitioned into a phase where we're, we're kind of looking at some of the cults around us that we might interact with as we're seeking to understand what the Bible says and, and how to avoid being caught in deception. So up to this point, we have covered how to recognize deceptive teaching and false teachers. We've covered how to share our faith with someone who's been sucked into deception, and we've covered where most modern-day cults come from. We looked at that last week when we looked at the restoration movement's history and its beliefs. We also showed how almost all the major cults that we interact with in our city, they all started in the United States during or just after the restoration movement came onto the scene. And as I said last week, that is that is sus, all right? That is suspect, all right? That is suspect. That should make you go, yeah, that's not coincidence, okay? Why are they all springing up in the United States of America, and why all this time? That should get our attention, and we should go, something ain't right. Now, most modern-day cults, they were spinoffs of the Restoration Movement. They were groups who were subject to the winds of doctrine that were blowing around during that time period. And so, because many of these cult founders didn't know the Bible, and they were tossed by these winds of doctrine, they fell for the lies of the Restoration Movement, and then they took them a step further. They took those lies a step further. So, in our remaining studies for the next few weeks in the cults, we're going to return to 1 Kings after that in a few weeks, but in our remaining studies, we're going to educate ourselves on the cults that we are likely to come into contact with in our community here in Central Florida. And so we're going to examine the claims of some of those cults and that started during this time period, and then we're going to test them against Scripture like 1 John chapter 4 commands. So tonight we're going to begin with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's more commonly probably known to you as Mormonism or the Mormons. So a couple important reminders as we do this tonight. What we're doing tonight is not for the purpose of evangelism. What we're going to do for the next few weeks is not for the purpose of evangelism. We already covered that topic when we went through the book of Jude. The book of Jude taught us how to share the gospel with a cult member. So this is what Jude taught us. If you read the book of Jude and you get towards the end, you're going to see all five of these principles when he explains to us how to reach someone who's caught in deception. Number one, he said, use the Bible always. Number two, remember that love is how others know we belong to Jesus. Slamming the door on their face is not going to show them Jesus. Pray. It's a supernatural transaction that's happening. They need to hear from the Holy Spirit, not be convinced by your logic or your ability to trash their cult. Always be kind and gracious. And then fifthly, and this is really key, deal with assurance of salvation because no one who's involved in a cult has that. They don't teach that you can have that, so no one has that. Now, I bring this up because if you and I take what we are going to learn this week and the next week when we look at Jehovah's Witnesses and the week after that we look at another cult, if you're going to take these lessons and you're going to use them as a weapon to win a conversation with someone who's in a cult or come into your door to evangelize you, then you're going to miss the point and you're going to fail to reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not doing this tonight so you can weaponize it in a conversation. Our goal in educating ourselves on Mormonism and other cults is to show how these cults are in conflict with Scripture so that we'll never be deceived by them. That's the goal tonight and the next few weeks, is to show how the folks who are coming to your door and saying, we've got another gospel, we've got good news, they're not bringing you good news. They're bringing you bad news, okay? 
we're going to look at what they offer, and we're going to show how that we already have everything we need in Christ. So rather than what the next few weeks being something and go, ooh, now I can really get a Mormon, what we're going to look at the next few weeks is call it spiritual preventative maintenance, okay? That's what we're going to look at this. That's what the purpose of this is. If you don't get that and you go into this and you're like, yeah, now I can get my coworker who's a Mormon, you're missing the point and you're not going to represent Christ correctly, okay? All right, since we're on the same page, let's dive in. Now, a couple resources. This is not going to be exhaustive. It can't be exhaustive in one evening of 45 minutes or so. If you want to go deep, I recommend this book right here, One Nation Under God's A History of the Mormon Church. It is massive. It is a huge volume, and it is an awesome book. If you really want to dig deep, that is your resource. If you're looking for something a little bit lighter that will still kind of cover a lot of the stuff in more detail than I am tonight, read Letters to a Mormon Elder by James White. I have it in my office. It's a great book. It was one of the first books I read on Mormonism. It really helped me to get an idea because it's letters between him and an elder back and forth and how he kind of goes through the word as he's answering this guy's questions and also his critique of Christianity. Thirdly, get Kingdom of the Cults, which is an excellent book. It talks about tons of cults, but he has a really extensive, Dr. Walton Martin has an extensive section on Mormonism in there. That's an excellent resource. And then lastly, anything by Sandra Tanner. She's a former Mormon. She is the great-great-granddaughter of Brigham Young, the LDS Church's second president. She is a believer. She has written many materials that expose a lot of the lies in the Latter-day Saints Church. So literally, she's got tons of booklets, pamphlets, stuff. Her and her husband, her husband's gone home to be with the Lord. But anything by her is probably going to be really, really solid. So, all right. Well, In our examination of Mormonism, Mormons themselves give us our starting point for examination. President Joseph Fielding Smith, he's the great nephew of LDS Church founder Joseph Smith, he stated in 1970 in his Doctrines of Salvation, he says, Mormonism must stand or fall on the story of Joseph Smith. He was either a prophet of God who was divinely called, properly appointed, and commissioned, or he was one of the biggest frauds this world has ever seen. There is no middle ground. If Joseph Smith was a deceiver who willfully attempted to mislead people, then he should be exposed, his claims should be refuted, and his doctrines shown to be false. Well, that's a guy who's speaking as the president of the Mormon church, an apostle of the Mormon church, who speaks with authority and inspiration. So I'm going to take him up on his offer. We're going to take him up as an offer tonight. Let's see if his great uncle Joseph Smith was a prophet of God or if he was a deceiver. So, there's Joseph Smith for you. He is almost always depicted in very bright colors and very handsome. Some of the other photos you know I've shown you in the past, you're like, they're looking rough. You'll never see Joseph Smith that way. Joseph Smith was born in 1805 in Vermont. He was the fourth of ten children, and when the family moved to Palmyra, New York, most of the family joined the Presbyterian Church. Smith, however, remained undecided. His argument, we talked about this last week, and we talked about the Restoration Movement. His argument was that all the strife and the tension among the various denominations, it made him question which one was right. So in 1820, at the age of 14, Joseph Smith allegedly asked God to show him which denomination he should join. Smith claimed that he immediately had a visit from God the Father in physical form with a human body and his son, Jesus Christ. And their answer to his question is recorded in one of their books of Scripture, The Pearl of Great Price. I'm not making this up. These are his words. 
I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong, and the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt. That every single believer in every single denomination, those professors, they are all corrupt. Nobody's saved. Nobody has the truth. It's been lost. Now, This should sound familiar to us because we covered this idea last week. It's the very premise of the Restoration Movement. At the heart of the story of Mormonism is the concept that the church had entirely failed, that Jesus had been completely eclipsed and lost to the world, and that truth, therefore, had to be rediscovered. Well, this rediscovery occurred for Joseph Smith three years later. Smith claimed to have had a second vision in 1823 at the age of 17 in which an angel named Moroni sends Joseph Smith to rediscover the gospel. Joseph Smith, again, in Doctrines and Covenants, another scripture of the Mormons, he says this, again, his words, not mine. He, the angel Moroni, said there was a book deposited written upon golden plates that gave an account of the former inhabitants of this continent, so North America, South America, Central America. It was an account of the former inhabitants of, the, of this continent and the source from which they came, which they sprang. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in this book, as delivered by the Savior to the ancient inhabitants. Also, that there were two stones in silver bows, that's glasses in fancy term, There were special glasses, and that the stones that the lenses were made of, they were fastened to a breastplate, and they constitute what is called the Urim and the Thummim, and that God had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book. So in other words, this angel comes to Joseph Smith and says, I can tell you where these golden plates are that contain an account of the history of the Americas, shows you where those people came from, and it also, the book also has the everlasting gospel in it, and I can also show you where there are special glasses that you can wear that will help you to translate them, okay? Somebody just laughed, and there's a reason. That sounds kind of silly. Well, the angel Moroni, he gave Joseph Smith a location of the plates. They were buried in a hill just outside, just happened to be near where he lived, just outside the village of Manchester, New York. He claims to have found the plates that contained the book under a large stone inside an ancient stone box. Four years later, in 1827, Joseph Smith is 21 at this time, the angel gave him permission to take the plates out of the box and then made him responsible for their care. Joseph Smith then moved to his father-in-law's house in Pennsylvania to copy the characters off the plates and begin their translation. The translation was published three years later in March of 1830, claiming to be a translation of Reformed Egyptian, a lost language that the Native Americans spoke. The title of the publication was called The Book of Mormon. Two weeks after it was published, the Church of Christ was organized with six members. Now, I bring this up to show you that's their first name because that's what we covered last week. That's what the Campbell movement called their churches, the Church of Christ. Now, The reason that's important is because that's where Mormonism came from. One of the original six members of this church was Oliver Cowdery, a Campbell convert. We talked about him last week. So this is a church that is heavily influenced by all the false teaching that we talked about last week. That's something we cannot lose sight of. 
Now, in 1834, four years later, the name was changed to the Church of Latter-day Saints, and then in 1838, it was changed again to Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as it is known today. So, what is this new revelation that Joseph Smith discovered? Well, it turns out that the angel Moroni was a resurrected being. He was actually a prophet warrior from the story of the Book of Mormon. He allegedly buried these golden plates just before he died in 420 A.D., right after the great climactic battle between two civilizations at the end of the Book of Mormon. After Moroni died, he was resurrected as an angel, and he was tasked with guarding the plates until he could find a worthy person to entrust them to. Now, since we've got between, allegedly, 420 A.D. and 1820 A.D., between four, you got 1,400 years, since he didn't find someone who was worthy to give this story to, that means for 1,400 years the gospel was hid from the world. And in fact, it's hid longer than that because Jesus' disciples never had access to the Book of Mormon, and therefore they did not have the everlasting gospel. So technically, no one was saved and no one had the gospel for 1,800 years. Now, what's the story of the Book of Mormon? Well, the Book of Mormon claims to contain a record of Moroni's people, beginning in 600 B.C. and ending in 420 A.D. The story of the Book of Mormon begins in the city of Jerusalem in Israel, and it centers on a man named Lehi and his family, which had four sons. One of Lehi's sons, who's named Nehi, he wasn't a tall guy. I got to bring some brevity into this somehow, or levity, whatever you call it, something. One of Lehi's sons named Nehi receives a vision from God about the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. Some in his family mock him, but his father believes, and so the family flees into the wilderness where they build a boat and they sail to America. That's where you've lost me already. I'm just not, I'm not going with you there. Anyway, that's what they do. So when they land in Central America, a civil war breaks out, even though there's only 19 of them on the boat. A massive civil war breaks out between them because Laman, another son of his, rebels against his father. Well, his descendants, the Lamanites, become the bad guys in the story. One of the other sons is named not Nehi, but Nephi. And Nephi, his descendants, become the good guys in the story. Now, civil war rages between these two families for 600 years, and even though it was just 19 people to get started, there's hundreds of thousands of people dying like every 20 years. But then, in the middle of this, around 32 AD, Jesus shows up in the Americas. Rather than ascending into heaven after he rose from the dead, Jesus takes a detour and reveals himself to the Nephites and to the Lamanites. The Nephites accept him, but the Lamanites reject him. So Jesus, and this is a picture that they've Artwork is very prominent in, in Mormonism. This is artwork, and if you, if, I don't know how well you can see it, but, oh, you can see it pretty well. I've got a glare up here. But you can see, like, they, they're depicted as ancient Aztecs or, you know, Incans. They're, they have that garb on. For centuries, Mormons would point to Incan temples and say these were the, the ancient uh, Mormon temples that were built. And then, of course, we discover later on that human sacrifices were performed there and stuff, and that was a huge embarrassment. But Jesus is teaching the Nephites for years after he rises from the dead, and then he goes back to the spirit realm. 
Well, things don't end well for the Nephites. The kings from the Nephites and the Lamanites decide they're going to travel from Central America all the way up to New York to fight on a hill where the plates were buried and the Book of Mormon claims that 330,000 people are killed in that battle. That would, you imagine you'd see it, find a lot of remains on the hill, a lot of weapons buried, things like that, if you got that many people dying in one spot. Well, it turns out only 24 Nephites survived this battle. The bad guys win, which is why the Native Americans worshiped idols from that point on. Well, to ensure that the evil Lamanites can't destroy the Book of Mormon, Moroni buries it in a secret location on the hill before he is killed. So, that's the story of the Book of Mormon. Now, once the Book of Mormon was published, Joseph Smith gave the golden plates and gave the special glasses back to the angel Moroni, so we can't access them today. But Joseph Smith continued to receive revelations from angels. Those visions were published a year later in 1831, and they became one of their scriptures called Doctrines and Covenants. In 1829, John the Baptist, now an angel, just like Moroni is resurrected and made into an angel, John the Baptist, now an angel, appears to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery to restore to them the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods, to bring back priestly power and the authority required for the organization of the church on earth. So, not only does Joseph Smith have the only revelation that is the true gospel that anyone's had for 1,800 years, but now has been conferred upon him and one other person, they're the only two people who can administer the ordinances of the church so that you, you can be saved. Elijah the prophet appeared to Joseph Smith and Oliver Crowdery seven years later to give them the keys of the authority to administer the priesthood. So up to that point, they couldn't do anything, even though they were anointed for the task by John the Baptist. But seven years later, Elijah appeared to them, and he gave them the keys so they could unlock these things, and they could do it. Now, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, their website explains the significance of this event. They explained, this gave them the power of revelation. In other words, this gave them the ability to get new Scripture from God. Number two, this gave them the ordinances. They could now instruct the church on proper worship. It gave them the oracles. This was the ability to hear directly from God to comment on Scripture. They're the only ones, the apostles of the Mormon church are the only people who can tell you what the Bible means. You cannot go home and read your Bible or the Book of Mormon, in their case, or anything else and understand what it means. They have to tell you what it means. They received also the powers that was the ability to seal families for time and all eternity. We'll get more to that later, what that means. And then lastly, the endowments, which was the ability to perform sacred ordinances for the dead. Again, we'll get to that later. Although the church continued to grow at this point, uh, Mormons found themselves frequently in battles against non-Mormons, and so they constantly had to find new locations to settle down. When they tried to settle down at Nauvoo, Indiana, a local newspaper began publishing anti-Mormon material. In 1844, Joseph Smith ordered the printing press destroyed and every copy of the paper burned. This led to Joseph and his brother Hiram's imprisonment. Well, just a few weeks later, on June 27, 1844, a mob of about 200 people stormed the jail. They shot and killed Joseph Smith and his brother. After Joseph Smith's death, the leadership of the church went to a man named Brigham Young. He convinced the movement to travel westward. In 1847, they arrived at Salt Lake Valley in Utah, which became the headquarters of the Mormon church. 
By the time of Young's death in 1877, their members numbered about 150,000 people. Today, the church has over 4 million members worldwide. Now, when we examine this history of, of Joseph Smith, it does bring up an important question. So, why were he and his, his people always on the run? Were they persecuted for the truth? Or did people have good reason to be concerned about Smith's teachings and the practices that resulted from his teachings? What does the Book of Mormon teach? What is the everlasting gospel that Joseph Smith rediscovered? So our goal for the rest of this evening is to examine Joseph Smith's claims. We've heard his story. We're going to examine now his claims, and then we're going to measure them against the Bible to see if he's a prophet of God or if he's a deceiver. Because in the words of their own president, if he's a deceiver, he should be exposed and ignored and rejected. So let's see. All right, the first Mormon doctrine that we need to examine is who the Mormon God is. And we're, the way we're going to do this, we're going to look at what the Mormon church claims, and then we're going to look at what the Bible teaches, all right? Now, something important you need to understand. Mormons are polytheists. That means they believe in more than one God. Uh, there are many gods in the universe, but Mormons only worship three of those gods. Elohim is the Mormon head god. He is the eternal father. Jehovah is Jesus Christ. He is literally Elohim's son, not the Son of God that we describe that He's just like the Father. He has been physically created by Elohim having sex with one of His celestial wives. That's how Jesus was created, okay? Brigham Young taught that actually that Elohim came to earth and had sex with Mary to impregnate her, and that's how Jesus came about. They actually have, you can watch a little cartoon video that they show where Elohim comes in, he's all dressed up, all suave and nice, and he walks into the house, and you know, and he comes out, and Mary comes out, and she's all pregnant. So that's what he taught. Not every Mormon believes that, but that's what he taught. They also believe the Holy Spirit is God, but that gets weird. I don't even have time to get into that tonight. Now, you have to understand, though, their view of God, not only do they believe in multiple gods, but their view of who God is, 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 is radically different than ours. None of these three gods, Elohim, Jehovah, or the Holy Spirit, they're not omnipresent because they are merely men who became gods. They are men who ascended to Godhood. Mormons do not believe in the Trinity. They don't believe that they're one. They're only unified in their purpose. So Mormonism rejects the biblical doctrine of the Trinity like many in Restoration Theology did. We studied that last week. But the difference doesn't stop there. The gods that Mormons worship were all once men. So, quote from Joseph Smith. He said, here then is eternal life, to know the only wise and true God. That's great. That's Scripture. That's truth. Here's where it gets weird. And you have got to learn to be gods yourselves, the same as all gods have done before you. So, Elohim, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit were all once people like you and me, men who walked the earth and became a god. They learned how to become a god. Lorenzo Snow, the fifth president of the LDS church from 1898 until 1901, quoted this very common saying of Joseph Smith under inspiration, so codifying it as Mormon doctrine. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. So, the Mormon idea of God is that there are many gods. They only worship three, but there's many gods out there, and that 
the God that they worship was once a man. He's not omnipresent. He's not all-powerful. He was once just like you and me. Well, what does the Bible teach? <laughs> well, number one, the Bible very clearly teaches that there's only one God. Look at Isaiah 43 with me. There are numerous verses in Isaiah that teach this, but we're just going to grab one that is very clear and very straightforward. Isaiah 43, verse 10. Isaiah 43:10 says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was what? No God formed, neither shall there be after me. That's pretty clear, right? The Bible teaches that there is only one God. Paul echoes this statement when he is talking about food offered to idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. When he's discussing this topic, is it okay to eat food offered to idols? Uh, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. He says, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. That's not confusing language. That's very clear, crystal clear. The Bible teaches repeatedly there is only one God. Now, you say, well, wait a second, don't we believe in a, in a triune God? We do, because the Bible also teaches that God is a compound unity. He is a tri-unity. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we see one of the most famous statements that almost any Jew will be able to repeat to you. Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So, again, there's just, he's just one. And yet, that word one is fascinating because it's the word echad. The word achad, it means, it's the idea of a singularity. But the word echad, it means a compound unity. For example, if I were to tell you I had a bundle of sticks, I would not tell you I have bundles of sticks. I have one bundle, but inside the bundle are many sticks. That's echad. That's how echad is used. The very nature even of the word Elohim is plural. It's, you know, there's El is singular, and sometimes God is referred to by the term El. But Elohim is a plural word. So we see hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament. We see, for example, in Proverbs, I want to say it's chapter 30, where it mentions, do you know, can you ascend to where God is? Do you know his name? Do you know his son's name? It's all there in the Old Testament, but then it's clearly taught in the New Testament where Jesus says, I and my Father are one. No one else can claim that unless you're God. So the Bible teaches that God is a compound unity, a triune God. And then thirdly, the Bible teaches that God has always been God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus didn't become a God. He was God. In the beginning, it means it's in arche. And the word arche, it means beyond the horizon, beyond the vanishing point. It means go back to eternity as far as you can imagine and then keep going. As far as your brain can stretch to eternity, go there and then keep going. That's what in the beginning means. It means in the beginning, the word was. He was there. And he was always God. <laughs> He didn't become God. 
So when we examine the claims of the Mormon God, that as man is, God once was, the Bible teaches no. No. Lorenzo Snow and Joseph Smith are incorrect. Now, Brigham Young taught that, this is not a common Mormon belief today, but Brigham Young taught that Adam was also Jehovah, which gets confusing. So that means Adam is Jesus. He kind of hemmed and hawed on that point. But Brigham Young taught that Adam was also Jehovah, which means that Jesus sinned. He's not without sin, even though the Bible says he's without sin. But here's what's even crazier. He taught that Adam's fall into sin was a good thing because Adam wouldn't be able to procreate unless he sinned. Why is it so important for Jehovah to be able to procreate? Well, it was because of our second Mormon doctrine that we're going to examine, the Mormon view of salvation. Mormons believe that all created people will be in the first level of heaven. In fact, the only people who go to hell are murderers and those who speak against the Mormon church. I'm in trouble. You're all good. I'm in trouble. That's the only people. Everybody else, whether they're an unbeliever or not, they go to the first level of heaven. When explaining this, this is called the third article of the Mormon faith. But when explaining this third article of the Mormon faith, which codifies this universal salvation, James Talmage said this, the extent of the atonement, Jesus dying on the cross, he says is universal. It applies alike to all descendants of Adam, even the unbeliever, the heathen, and the child who dies before reaching the years of discretion. They are all redeemed by the same your self-sacrifice. So to go to heaven, you don't have to be a believer. You don't have to be a Mormon. Now, the only way to get beyond the first level of heaven, though, is by works. So everybody goes to the first level of heaven. There's three levels of heaven, according to the Mormons. The only way to get beyond the first level of heaven is by works. This is known as the doctrine of eternal progression. Eternal progression is their view of salvation. In other words, since eternal life, that, since eternal life and salvation is to learn to become a God myself, my goal as a Mormon, if I were one, was to do all the things necessary to become the God of my own planet. Well, how is my own planet populated? Well, Mormons believe in the preexistence of the soul. They believe that all human beings preexist as souls. So before you were born, you existed in a place called the guff. It's this big, huge vat of souls. All right? You were just swirling around in this big, huge bowl of souls all right? until a body was ready for you. And then when a body was ready, blammo, you came and you filled the body, and now you could interact. So Mormons believe that all human beings preexist as souls and that those souls take a body when they're born into the world. So a Mormon who progresses to the end of his salvation and becomes a god has to fill up his bowl. He has to populate his planet by having eternal sex and impregnating his eternal wife so she can give birth to spirit babies. If you are a Mormon woman, the highest place you can reach is to have children for the rest of your eternity. That is your role as a Mormon woman. There is no other role for you in eternity. Now, to qualify for godhood, a man needs to do the works necessary to become a Melchizedek priest. And then he and his wife, or originally multiple wives, because you can make babies quicker that way, he and his wife need to have their marriage sealed for eternity in a Mormon temple. If you don't qualify to be a Melchizedek priest, then you only get to ascend to the second level of heaven. 
And I really couldn't find what would be good about that. So you don't want to get stuck there. You want to go all the way to the third. Now, one of the things that Mormons need to do to ascend along the path of eternal progression is the works they have to do is they need to be baptized for their dead relatives. Because, remember what the restoration movement taught? That you're not forgiven. The Holy Spirit doesn't come inside of you. You're not saved until you're baptized. Your sins are not washed away until you're baptized. That is the same belief that every cult has, and the Mormons are no exception. They don't believe sins can be forgiven without baptism. So, since the gospel was hid for 1,800 years and nobody could be saved, how could all your dead relatives in the past ever get past the first heaven without being baptized? Well, we have, we have something we can do for you. You can get baptized for them. And so they believe in the doctrine called proxy baptism. You go in and they do a ritual where you are baptized on behalf of your dead relative so that they can go beyond the first heaven as a good Mormon. Can't go to the third, but they can at least get to the second. Okay. Well, what does the Bible teach about salvation? Well, the Bible teaches that salvation is to a relationship with God. Salvation is not to become our own God. In John chapter 14, verse 6, what did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to Godhood except by me, no man comes to the Father except by me. Our salvation is to be in right relationship with our Heavenly Father, with our Creator, not the one who birthed the, uh, you know, impregnated his wife to birth us physically, but our Creator. To know Him, to have a relationship with Him. We were separated from Him by our sins, but we are united with Him again through the cross and our faith in Christ. That is salvation according to the Bible. Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 3. Why don't you turn there with me? Philippians chapter 3. I love this. When we look in the Scriptures, this phrase appears multiple times, one thing. David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord. Godhood. No, that's not what he said. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I might behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. I want to know Him. I want to be with Him. I want to be in right relationship with Him. Later on, when Jesus was teaching on the earth, and it says that Mary was sitting at His feet learning from Him, and Martha was all upset because she was getting dinner ready and Mary wasn't helping, and she said, Lord, why don't you tell my sister to help me out? And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're you're busy about a lot of things. You've got a lot of things on your mind. He goes, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that better part, and I won't take it from her. She's learning to become a god. No, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's hanging out with Jesus, knowing him. And then Paul the apostle here, we see our third one thing in the scripture. In chapter 3, verse 8 of Philippians, Paul says, yea, Doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of becoming a God? No. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. I want to know Jesus. And I do count, he says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Any other accomplishment I can gain, it's trash compared to knowing Christ. And to be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness 
which is of God, which comes from God, which is by faith. And here he says it, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. I want to apprehend the reason Jesus grabbed hold of my life. I want to grab hold of him. I want to know him. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting all those things I pursued before, I reach forth unto those things which are in front of me. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I remember I grew up Catholic, and if, if you're Catholic or you grew up that way, I'm, I'm not trying to bash Catholics here, but I, I went to Catholic school. I got the bruised knuckles to prove it. It's the only place where child abuse is legal. In all those years that I was there, no one ever taught me I could know Jesus. They taught me what I needed to do. Nobody taught me I could know Jesus. So when I got saved, that was a glorious new thing that I could know God, that I could know my Savior. When I went off to Bible college, I was down, me and some of my roommates would go and we would we'd pass out tracts down at one of the piers, and there was always this little Catholic monk there, and we'd always engage him in conversation, and he didn't know the Bible at all. And so he couldn't answer any of our questions, he, he you know, didn't know anything, and he'd constantly get frustrated when we'd come by because we were knuckleheads and a little bit arrogant. Well, finally he says, I, I know what to do. He gave us a pamphlet, and he says, you need to come to our church as a Catholic apologist here, and he'll be able to answer all your questions. And we thought, <laughs> we're Bible college students. We're going to go down here, and we'll get to share the gospel with all these people who aren't saved. That dude was one of the smartest men I've ever met in my life, and he, he, he put holes in my faith, and it was the scariest thing I'd ever gone through because everything I thought I knew called into question. Now, that guy's a full-blown heretic. Not all Catholics I know believe what he believed. But I remember spending the next three days, and I said, Lord, I need to know what your word says. I spent it in the library. I didn't come out, and I just studied the Word, and I was like, God, I need answers. And I found them here and solidified my faith. The Bible, it's about, it says it's about knowing Christ. That's what salvation is, knowing Jesus, being in right relationship with God, not becoming a God. The Bible also teaches that salvation doesn't happen by my own righteousness, whether that's my own baptism or having my marriage sealed by a special ritual or having someone else be baptized for me after I'm dead. Salvation is a free gift from God received by faith alone, by the individual alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved. And that through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, the Mormon God is different than the Bible teaches. The Mormon view of salvation is different than the Bible teaches. What about the Mormon Savior? Well, Mormons' claims about Jesus, they claim he is not God's unique son. He is Elohim's first spirit baby, but he's just one of many that were birthed by Elohim's celestial wives. Jesus is therefore just like the rest of us. Jesus himself revealed this to Joseph Smith in his first appearance to Joseph Smith. As Smith recorded it in Doctrines and Covenants, again, this is a book they consider to be inspired. It's their scripture. 
Jesus revealed this in an appearance of Joseph Smith. Jesus said, and now, verily I say unto you, I was in the beginning with the Father and am the firstborn. And all those who are begotten through me are partakers of the glory of the same, and they are the church of the firstborn. You were also in the beginning with the Father. No, you weren't. Joseph Smith said again, his humanity is to be recognized as real and ordinary. Whatever happened to him may happen to any one of us. What does the Bible teach about our Savior? Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the unique Son of God. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that He gave His what? Only begotten Son. That whosoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible also teaches that Jesus existed for all eternity as God. He was never a man first who ascended to Godhood. In John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says in the next verse, just in case we didn't get it, the same was in the beginning with God. Don't listen to Joseph Smith when he says whatever happened to him can happen to us. Don't listen to the lie of doctrines and covenants which says, oh, Jesus said you were in the beginning with the Father. No, he exclusively was in the beginning with the Father not you and me. The Bible teaches that Jesus existed for all eternity as God. The Bible also teaches that Jesus became a man and reflected the power of God when he, the incarnation occurred, when he took on a body and was born as a man. In John 1.14, but the Word was made flesh. The Word always was God, always was. He became a man. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says the same exact thing. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Jesus became a man and reflected the power of God while he was on earth. That's what the Bible teaches. And the Bible also teaches that the idea that a created being can become the creator, that that is alien to the Bible. That idea, it's totally not in the Bible. It is rather, the Bible says, a mark of those who suppress the truth. In Romans chapter 1, verses 23 to 25, it says, professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. Why? Because they change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up unto uncleanness through the lust of their own heart to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who, who is he doing this to? The ones who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The idea that we could become creations, creators, the Bible tells us that's suppressing truth. It's a lie. So the Mormon doctrine on the Savior is found to be wanting. Well, what about the Mormon prophet and priest, Joseph Smith? What do we find in him when we look at what the Bible says about a true prophet of God? Well, Joseph Smith claimed that God appeared to him in 1820 to say that all denominations and all of their professors were an abomination. If that is true, then why did Joseph Smith become a member of the Methodist Church in 1823? It's on record. It's one of the cool things about churches that keep membership. It's all written down. Smith was expelled from the Methodist Church in 1828 for two reasons. We're listed on the roll, because of his belief in magic and also because of his, quote, money-digging activities. It is well documented that Joseph Smith was a treasure hunter by the practice of water witching. 
What is water witching? It's where you'd use a magically imbued stick to find the location of things. That was his profession before all this happened. Now, that in and of himself does not make him disqualified to be used by God because many of us have sordid pasts. But Joseph Smith continued in these activities even after Moroni gave him the Book of Mormon and he was kicked out of the Methodist church for being involved in them. That's after he was declared to be God's prophet to restore the truth. That's a problem. When I read the article about the pastor who had, been, who had the sexual relationship with the teenager in his church and 30 years later finally came out and he confessed, that's horrifying. That's not a man we should look to as a leader. That's not someone who God sent. Now, one of the reasons that Joseph Smith and his followers were chased from town to town is because of their teaching on celestial marriage. If your goal is to become a God who can populate your own planet, well, that's going to take time, a lot of time, if you only got one wife. So, Smith and the other Mormon leaders of original Mormonism taught polygamy. Joseph Smith had at least 28 wives that the Mormon church admits to but some lists take that number up to 51. Numerous of his wives were in their teens when Smith was in his 30s, with the youngest being 14 when he was 38. Joseph Smith was not a prophet persecuted for preaching the truth. He was a pervert persecuted for abusing women. The Bible teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, that an elder is to be blameless and the husband of one wife. Smith's record after receiving the call to be God's prophet is that of being involved in witchcraft and polygamy. He is disqualified from being a prophet of God by his character. He does not meet the biblical requirements. And lastly, there is one other thing that disqualifies him, his new revelations, his new scripture. Look at Deuteronomy 18 with me. We're probably going to go just a couple minutes late tonight. Deuteronomy 18. This is important. Now, Deuteronomy 18 is used by the Church of Latter-day Saints to say this is a prophecy of Joseph Smith. We believe, and it is the truth, that this is a prophecy of Jesus. They believe it's a prophecy of Joseph Smith. But Joseph Smith is disqualified. Even if this were him, he's disqualified by these very words. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, Moses predicts, I will raise them up a prophet from among, God will, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto you, Moses, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I'll require it of him. That's what they say. You've got to listen to Joseph Smith. Well, they need to keep reading. Verse 20. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if he shall say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing doesn't follow, if he predicts something it doesn't happen, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. But the prophet has spoken it presumptuously out of his own heart. You shall not be afraid of him. Don't have to listen to anything he says. All right? Well, Mormons claim these verses predict Joseph Smith would come in these verses. 
Well, let's see if these extra three books that Joseph Smith wrote are true or if this prophet is to be rejected. Which brings us to the last doctrinal point, the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon has a book in it called Mormon. And Mormon 9.32 states, And now, behold, we have written this record according to our knowledge in the characters which are called among us the Reformed Egyptian, being handed down and altered by us according to our manner of speech. In other words, the Book of Mormon was written in a lost language called Reformed Egyptian. There is no such language as Reformed Egyptian. Now, if the plates existed, we could examine and say, well, what language is on these plates? But we can't because Smith gave them back to Moroni the angel. But Smith did produce a bit of Reformed Egyptian in another scripture called the Pearl of Great Price. He came across a manuscript which he said was the book of Abraham. And then he published that papyri, the copy of it, the letters, the hieroglyphics on it, in there, and then translated it and said that it was a book that contained the writings by Abraham while he was in Egypt during the famine of Genesis chapter 12. Well, when portions of this papyrus that Smith translated from the book of, book of Abraham were discovered in 1960, translators found out it's not a new language at all. It came from the Egyptian book of the dead. The actual translation bears no resemblance to Smith's translation of the book of Abraham in Mormon scripture. The pearl of great price cannot be true and therefore cannot be from God. Joseph Smith is not just a man who's mistaken, he is a liar. In addition to this, the book of Mormon lists numerous animals amongst the two Central American civilizations that did not exist on that continent until the Europeans brought them over a thousand years later. In the book of Ether, chapter 9, verses 18 and 19, it says the Nephites had all manner of cattle, of oxen and cows and of sheep and of swine and of goats. They also had horses and donkeys, and there were elephants too. The Americas had no cows, no donkeys, no horses or oxen prior to the 15th century. This is claiming they were there in the 4th century B.C. and 100 A.D. and 400 A.D., and there were certainly no elephants here at that time. It claims that there were chickens, dogs, butter, wild honey. There were no honeybees prior to the European conquest of the Americas. Claims there were sheep, leopards, and lions. All of these are mentioned in the Book of Mormon. There's no history of these animals in the Americas. It mentions wheat, barley, and olives, but none of those were in the Americas at that time. It mentions silk and wool and the moths that eat the wool. There were no such thing as moths in the Americas at that time. None of those things existed in the Americas then. As I mentioned earlier, when Lehi took his family to the Americas, his group consisted of fewer than 20 people. And yet, in just 19 years, the people had prospered and multiplied in the new promised land of the Americas. That's what the Book of Mormon calls the Americas, the promised land. That's also a restoration theology idea. They had prospered so much in just 19 years that they built a temple to quote 2 Nephi 5.16, that was like unto the temple of Solomon. Well, 1 Kings 5 and 6 teach that the construction of Solomon's temple took 30,000 Israelites, 150,000 hewers of stone and carriers of stone, 3,300 supervisors, and it took seven years to build it. That is an impossibility. Ether 789 also claims that there was steel in breakable windows in Abraham's day. Steel wasn't developed until about 1,400 years after Abraham's time. 
And yet the most egregious issue of all that I've listed is that climactic battle that took place in New York. The Book of Mormon claims that 330,000 people were killed on that hill. The story talks about their weapons, their breastplates, their helmets, and their swords. Before the LDS church purchased the hill in 1928, it was literally dug full of holes that it had caves in it. Nothing has ever been found on that hill or anywhere else on our continent to support a battle of that size. No bodies, no weapons, no armor have been found on that hill. And because it was so embarrassing for LDS apologists who were trying to prove the Book of Mormon in the mid-1970s, LDS President Spencer W. Kimball, the man who holds the priestly authority over all the church on earth, at that time said, and I quote, people should stop looking for archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon, for there is none. Not my words. By Joseph Smith's own testimony, the words of Jude are fulfilled. In Jude 1.10, where he says, but these speak evil of those things which they don't know. But what they know naturally, what they have come to know comes from naturally, they're like brute beasts. You could get better information from talking to your pet hamster. And in those things, they corrupt themselves. They speak about things they do not understand because they never knew the Bible. That's what false teachers do. That's what Joseph Smith did. The Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price and Doctrines and Covenants are man-made myths. They betray an individual who didn't know Middle Eastern or even American history. Middle Eastern American geography, biology, zoology, botany, or even common sense math. Those are all areas that a human being could be lacking in. It's understandable. It's understandable. If someone wrote a story called the Book of Mormon and said, hey, here's my fiction novel, you might write and go, well, that didn't happen in history and stuff. And well, oh, okay, I'm a human being. I'll go back and do some studying and rewrite it. But that can't happen to the all-knowing, all-wise God who knows all those things intimately because he created all of them. If you go to Israel, or you go to Egypt, or you go to Babylon, and you start digging, you will find evidence for everything taught in the Bible. That's because the events of the Bible actually happened. And yet, the Mormon church has the audacity to claim in their eighth article of faith, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly, which they say it hasn't been. Joseph Smith claimed that the Bible you have in your hand has been corrupted and can't be trusted. Just like Jude predicted, false teachers would someday claim. In Jude 1.8, likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignitaries, glorious ones, those who gave us the word of God. In Jude 1.16, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaks great swelling words because they want people to admire them and follow them. And so this evening, I leave you with Galatians chapter 1. Seals the deal. Verses 6 through 9. Paul says this. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. He says, I marvel, I marvel that you are so soon moved from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel. But then he says, which is not another. 
It's not good news. It's bad news. It's not another gospel. But there are some who would trouble you. They don't have good news for you, and they would pervert the gospel of Christ. So what do we do about that? Paul says, here's your measuring stick. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Anathema is the word. Lost. Don't listen to him. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. He is not from God. Guys, the everlasting gospel was never lost and it never changes because no matter how much we try to mess things up, God is still God and the gates of hell won't prevail against his church. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, I hope that this was... uh, for lack of a better term, an inoculation for all of us. Lord, that this is the medicine we need to, to get us to a place where we'd never fall prey to the false teaching that is Mormonism. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to love the Mormons who are in our, our city uh, when they come to our door, when we interact with them. If we have coworkers or family members, help us to love them, to preach the gospel like Jude taught to them. But Lord, help us to never fall prey to these lies, that the exposure we saw tonight would be that inoculation that we would never be carried about by these winds of doctrine, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.